Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this inspiring TED Talks HCI podcast episode, I explore Joan C. Williams' recent TED Talk, Why Corporate Diversity Programs Fail, and What to Do Instead. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's great to be with you again today for this inspiring TED Talks HCI podcast episode. Today I'll be exploring Joan C. Williams' recent TED Talk, Why Corporate Diversity Programs Fail and What to Do Instead. In the wake of George Floyd's death, companies are finally feeling the pressure to do something about diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a society, we've spent over $1 billion on diversity efforts with remarkably little to show for it. Why? The basic tools of the diversity industrial complex haven't worked. In this persuasive talk, Joan C. Williams explains a better data-driven approach to interrupt bias at work. Over the past 25 years, Joan C. Williams has played a central role in reshaping the conversation about work, gender, and class. She is a distinguished professor of law, Hastings Foundation chair, and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings Law. She's one of the 10 most cited scholars in her field and is the author or co-author of 11 books, including What Works for Women at Work and White Working Class. She developed Bias Interrupters, an evidence-based, metrics-driven approach to eradicating implicit bias. Thanks for joining me, and I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. In 2018, two black men went to a Starbucks to wait for a business associate. But when they asked to use the bathroom, the manager ordered them to leave. They refused, he called the police, and the video went viral. Amidst an avalanche of bad publicity, Starbucks closed all stores across the country for four hours of diversity training. And so baristas were handed workbooks with prompts like, what makes me, me, and you, you, and understanding our bias from colorblind to color brave. This made newspapers across the country, and arguably that was the goal. Look, everyone, we're solving our diversity problem. The assumption, though, was that you could address structural racism with a, an earnest conversation about our feelings. My take, give me a break. To address structural racism, you need to change structures. So in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, 
My sense is that many companies are feeling pressure to actually deliver on their diversity goals, but they haven't a clue what to do. And that's because we spent probably close to a billion dollars on diversity, but the basic tools of the diversity industrial complex, they just don't work. A one-shot bias training, it, it doesn't work for a really simple reason. Doing anything once won't change a company's culture. And the other basic tools, things like an employee resource group or a woman's initiative, they're fine if the problem is with the women and the people of color, but it's, it's not. If a company faces challenges surrounding diversity, typically it's because subtle and not so subtle forms of bias are constantly being transmitted through their basic business systems, through hiring, through performance evaluations, through access to opportunities. So we need to stop trying to fix the women and the people of color. We need to fix the business systems. And if you think about it, this makes sense. Because if a company was facing challenges with sales, it wouldn't respond by holding a series of sincere conversations about how much we all value sales and put on programming for National Celebrate Sales Month and expect sales to improve. But that's a lot of what we're doing in the diversity context. Diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives aren't new. We've been focusing on these in corporate America for a long time, and it's only picked up more and more steam over the last decade. Companies spent a lot of money on diversity training, implicit bias training, and trying to make sure that they're casting a wide net in their recruitment process and trying to hire more diverse staffs. The challenge is we don't actually see a lot of progress despite all of the money and the effort and the time and the trainings that everyone has done. And what she's suggesting here, uh, not only does she lay out the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why it's such a big problem, but she's arguing that the approach that we've taken, of course, it hasn't produced the results that we would hope to see. Because if we're only focusing on individual inner work and attitudes, that can have an impact on that individual if we're consistent over time. A one-off diversity training or implicit bias training probably isn't going to do much of anything to change the way anyone works inside of themselves and how their their biases manifest over time. If, if it's consistent, perhaps that individual can. But the problem that we see in organizations isn't even so much due to all the um, individual people doing things that are discriminatory, but it's the systems, the policies, the practices, procedures. It's the systems that are in place that are systemically racist, gender biased, uh, bigoted towards L LGBTQ people, um, and so forth. And so what we need to do, if, if we want to solve the problem, we have to take a systems approach. We have to, to redesign the processes. We have to embed the, the, the culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the organization, throughout the various mechanisms of the organization. And what comes in the rest of her talk is she'll start to outline some of, of the different approaches that we can take as we're addressing very specific types of 
inequities and uh, challenges in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion. If we really want to tackle diversity effectively, we need to use the same tools businesses use to tackle any business problem, evidence and metrics. And, you know, I suspect this will come as a relief to a lot of CEOs who feel far more comfortable using those tools than they do with trying to lead a deep conversation about the inner workings of social inequality. You know, the first step is for us to understand what bias looks like on the ground. And I and my team at Work Life Law, we have been studying how bias plays out in everyday workplace interactions for well over a decade. And what we find is that the same patterns of bias, the same five patterns, they emerge over and over again. So here's what the evidence looks like. Using evidence and metrics to understand what things look like on the ground, understanding the patterns of bias that exist within our institutions, our organizations, and within the systems that, you know, regardless of our best intentions, uh, persists over time. So we can do trainings all we want, but unless we come back to the actual conditions of the organization and then we utilize evidence and we track things over time, we're really not going to be able to move things in a positive direction. The first pattern we call prove it again. Some groups have to prove themselves more than others. This is triggered by lots of different things. It's triggered by race and gender age, disability, LGBTQ status, even social class. So one study, for example, looked at callbacks offered to white men with identical qualifications but different hobbies. One resume listed things like sailing and polo, and the other resume listed things like counseling first-generation college students, and country music. And if you can believe it, Mr. Polo, he got 12 times the number of callbacks as Mr. Country Music. Too often when we talk about privilege, we forget about class. So the first pattern is the prove-it-again bias. And certain groups, certain populations, end up having to quote-unquote prove it again over and over and over again while certain privileged groups, such as white men, really only have to demonstrate something one time, or it's assumed that they're already proficient or they're already capable. Now, I'm a white man, and so I'm sure that I've benefited from this bias in the past. But she also, she points out it's, you know, it's gender, it's, it's, uh, it's race, ethnicity, it's LGBTQIA plus populations, but it's also class, it's socioeconomic status. And I have experienced this to some extent uh, on the class and SES basis, and it's frustrating. It's super frustrating. So I can only imagine if I get frustrated and I'm a super privileged white man, uh, how much more difficult is it going to be for others who are forced to prove it again over and over and over again uh, when others around them don't perform at the same levels, they, they don't prove themselves, and they're constantly 
rewarded and constantly promoted. Uh, super frustrating, super demoralizing, and simply not psychologically safe. The second pattern is called the tightrope, and it reflects the fact that a, a certain in-group of white men just need to be authoritative and ambitious in order to succeed. But women walk a tightrope where they may be seen as abrasive if they're authoritative, but unqualified if they're not. And people of color who behave assertively often are written off as angry if they're black, even hot-headed if they're Latinx, and sometimes as untrustworthy if they're Asian American. Women, people of color, women of color, uh, the tightrope is a very real thing that they're trying to balance the perceptions of others around them. And, and so we, we just need to be aware of those biases, those, those assumptions that we're making about particularly women, about, particularly about people of color, um, because we hold these populations to a completely different standard often than we do white men. I've seen this play out over and over again. And again, I'm, I suspect I've benefited from this bias as well. It's, it's part of my privilege that I experience as a white man. I can acknowledge that. I can accept that. And it's my responsibility to not perpetuate that kind of bias in my teams and the people where I, the places where I work and try to create a more um, safe environment where everyone can truly be included and they don't have to feel like they have to walk that tightrope. They can just be their, their authentic self. The next pattern we call the tug of war and it reflects the fact that sometimes bias against a group fuels conflict within the group. So for example, if there's room for only one woman or person of color, it's entirely predictable. Women are going to be super competitive with other women and people of color competitive with other people of color. I have seen this tug of war bias play out as well, and it really can further disadvantage an already disadvantaged group. And so when you start to see infighting amongst women, for example, because there's really only so many opportunities for women, uh, it, it's incredibly unfortunate. So you have incredibly capable people with lots of capacity and capabilities. And instead of trying to support each other and increase opportunities for everyone, they end up dragging each other down and hurting everyone's chances uh, within their group. Now, it's not just women. Like This can happen in any uh, similar type of, of circumstance, and she, she lays that out uh, pretty quickly. But ultimately, we can't, if I'm the boss, if I'm the, the manager, the leader of, of my team, and I observe any of this happening, then I got to do something about the culture, about the systems in place, and I need to support my people so that they don't feel like they have to compete in that way with each other. Uh, but you know, rather than dragging each other down, they can support each other. The fourth pattern of bias is actually the strongest form of gender bias called the maternal wall. And it reflects assumptions that mothers aren't committed, probably shouldn't be, and aren't competent. Think pregnancy brain. So mothers often find they have to prove themselves yet again when they return from maternity leave. And if they do, they may be seen as bad mothers and so as bad people 
and disliked. This is such a challenging one. The maternal wall, I've seen this play out so many times. And women already have to deal with so many different biases. But the assumptions around motherhood and what it means to be a mother in relation to the workplace and what it means for them to return to work after taking maternity leave, all of this is just a whole bunch of assumptions. It has nothing to do with their actual ability to perform on the job. And other groups of people take breaks for a variety of reasons. There's, you know, taking care of your parents. Uh, maybe you have a child. Uh, there's paternity leave as well as maternity leave. Like there's so many different reasons why people sometimes have to pause on their job or their career, step away, and then come back. Uh, the reality is, though, uh, as while it's more uncommon for men to step away than women, it's much easier for, for them to step back in after stepping away. And again, it's just based on these assumptions about what it means to be a good mom and judgments about you know whether they're committed enough to the work or if they're distracted, quote unquote, distracted too much at home. I mean, I'm a man, but I'm, I'm a you know what people often refer to as a family man, uh, quote unquote. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my family, with my kids, and I've been explicitly told in the past that I've lost out on promotions because I was quote unquote. I was seen as, quote-unquote, too much of a family man. Uh, now, if that happened to me as a white man, privileged white man, you can imagine how often those sorts of things happen to women, uh, people of color, uh, and these other uh, disadvantaged groups. We just got to knock off these assumptions and just base our decision-making on actual performance. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. The final pattern consists of racial stereotypes. So Asian Americans again and again report that they're seen as a great match for technical skills, but lacking in leadership potential. And our studies show that black professionals, oh, again and again, report really high levels of isolation and often startling forms of disrespect. And an Asian American professional may be seen as too emotional in a discussion where, you know what, a white man behaving exactly the same way 
would be seen as having a career-enhancing passion for the business. And so what we find is that white women report four patterns of bias. Men of color also report four. Women of color report all five in very substantial proportions. And among women of color, black women report the most bias as a group. But the bottom line really is that the experience of white men as a group differs from that of every other group. If a white man is a first-generation professional or LGBTQ, he may encounter bias, but, but most aren't. After all of these patterns she's been laying out, and I, I hope that you've been thinking about your own organizations, your own cultures, your own environments at work, and how they, they play out, we finally, in the final one, in number five, we get to racial biases, right? And honestly, these are the ones that most people often think of first when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I'm just pointing this out because it is important, and there are lots of problems with racial racial biases, but it's the fifth and final one that she's listing. And again, she's the expert in this field. There are many different types of biases. Racial, ethnic biases are so problematic as well. And everything that she lays out in that in that clip, uh, we need to avoid, obviously. Um, we just need to recognize that there are so many different ways that we can really hurt those around us in these disadvantaged populations. Uh, and it has nothing to do with our intentions. Our intentions may be completely pure. But if the systems are in place to disadvantage these groups and to, there's nothing to keep our biases in check, especially the implicit ones that we're not even aware of, then the problem is going to continue and it's never going to be disrupted. These biases can have really serious negative effects. You know, there's a ton of research. But here's a story that really says it all. We were working with one company and we spoke to a woman engineer who had found a mistake in one of the calculations of a male colleague and she pointed it out. Um, When she pointed it out, she was violating an unwritten rule. The good woman is seen as modest, self-effacing and nice, not a mission-driven expert. That's why male experts in meetings exert more influence, but you know what? Female experts, they actually exert less influence than female non-experts do. And so when this engineer pointed out the mistaken calculation, she told us, the response of her department was so massively negative that she said, now I'm just smiling a lot and bringing in cupcakes. This company, by allowing gender bias to go unchecked, was literally jeopardizing their mission. There is so much research on the negative effects of these biases in the workplace. We need diversity. We need to treat people fairly with dignity and respect. So equity is important. And we need environments where people feel safe. We need inclusive and Uh, inclusive environments of belonging, where people feel safe, where they feel heard, where they can be their authentic self, where they can bring their questions and concerns to the table, where they can speak up and speak out, where it's psychologically safe. And these biases all disrupt what organizations 
are trying to accomplish with their DE&I efforts. The research is incredibly clear about the negative effects when we have the biases uh, that are prevalent in our organizations, and it's crystal clear on the positive effects of really embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and having an inclusive organization. So let's not fool ourselves about um, any justifications for why it's too hard, or why uh, we just can't do it, or it's a waste of time and money. No, the reality is it's worth every last bit of time and money that we put into it. The question is, are we doing, are our efforts effective? Is it having the sustainable type of impact that we're going for? And of course, her whole point in this talk is that no, we've been we've been putting a lot of time and effort and money into something, but not addressing the systemic biases, the the systemic issues that are keeping these problems at the forefront of organizations and perpetuating the problem. So we need to disrupt the systems. So what's the solution? The solution is to use bias interrupters. New tools my team has developed that are evidence-based and metrics-driven. And I've just told you about a lot of the evidence. Metrics are also super important because they help you pinpoint where things are going wrong. So if a company has challenges with hiring, they should be keeping track of who is in the original pool of candidates and who survives resume review and who gets called to interview and who survives the interview. And the reason that's important is because the fix, if you have a non-diverse original pool, it's totally different than the fix if no woman ever survives the interview because every woman is either too witchy or too meek. Evidence-based and metrics-driven bias interrupters. That is what is needed to disrupt the systems that are in place in our organizations that are disproportionately negatively impacting people of color, women, women of color uh, in these various disadvantaged groups uh, based on social class, socioeconomic status, whatever, right? We, we need to disrupt it. And if we're going to disrupt it, we need to do it with an evidence-based approach using metrics and embedding those metrics and those mechanisms of evaluation throughout the organization, throughout the performance management process, of course, in the recruitment, selection, onboarding process, uh, in terms of how people get promoted, training opportunities, professional development opportunities, all of these different types of employee experiences, we need metrics to be able to take an evidence-based approach to tackling the systems. If we don't do that, we can talk about it and have nice conversations all day long, and we're only going to see improvement on the margins. There's only gonna be a little bit here and there, as individuals can make a difference, but it's the systems, it's the large processes, it's the policies and practices, uh, and the norms within an organization that have to get disrupted. Metrics are also super important for another reason, to establish baselines and measure progress. If you use evidence and metrics, what we have found is that small tweaks can have really big effects. So we've worked with one company, for example, who asked us to look at their performance evaluations. And when we did, we found that only 9.5% of the people of color 
had leadership mentioned in their performance evaluations. That was 70 points lower than white women. And that was super important because, as you can imagine, mentions of leadership predicted advancement. And so we worked with them to do two simple things. First, we redesigned the performance evaluations form. And second, we helped them develop a simple one-hour workshop that, among other things, projected actual comments from the prior year's performance evaluations and asked people a simple question. Which of the five patterns of bias does this represent, or is it no bias? Just doing that, we found in year two, 100% of the people of color had leadership mentioned in their performance evaluations. You know, at this company, white women, they had a different problem. Almost 20% had comments in their performance evaluations that they didn't really want to make partner. This was a partnership. And we suspected, you know, the women hadn't actually said that. It was just assumptions. And so in that one-hour workshop, we told people, hey, don't say this unless you've actually had a conversation and then someone has told you they don't want to make partner. In year two, only one woman got that comment. One woman in the entire company. The use of metrics will help you to establish baselines, to have a better sense of where you're actually at. Not just your assumption of where you're at, but where you're actually at. What's going well, what's not going well, where are the gaps, what areas need to be focused on and addressed. And when you have better picture of that using the, the metrics and the assessment that is ongoing, then you can make small tweaks. I mean, sometimes it's big things. Sometimes you have to dismantle big processes and systems and, and uh, tear them down and build them back up in a more equitable way. But sometimes it's really just small little tweaks that can be made that will make a huge ongoing impact you know, especially over time, that you'll start start to see big, big differences throughout your organization. But there's no way to know that. There's no way to know where to make those tweaks, um, at least not in an informed way, unless you have the metrics and unless you take an evidence-based approach. Otherwise, you're shooting blind and you're really just guessing as to what's going to make a difference. And so what we find is that we have helped over 100 companies actually make progress towards their diversity goals. And there's growing evidence that these bias interrupters work. And the best thing about them is that they help every single group. So in this company I've been talking about, um, in year two, people of color, they got wildly more constructive feedback. It was like a 30% jump. But white women they got more constructive feedback too, and so did white men. If you design your systems based on evidence, it's going to help every single group. So the bottom line, if you think about it, your systems and your culture, they reflect the people you've already hired. So if you want to replicate that workforce into the future, definitely keep on doing exactly what you're doing. But if you don't, if you actually want to make progress on diversity, equity, and inclusion, what we call DEI, my message 
to CEOs is reassuring. You already know what to do. Use standard business tools. Start from the evidence, gather metrics to establish baselines and measure progress, and keep at it until you achieve your goals. That's the new DEI playbook, and it works. Thank you. If we just keep doing what we've always been doing, if we just try to sustain and maintain the existing culture, the existing processes and procedures, the, the, the current systems, if, if we're just trying to maintain the status quo, then of course we're only going to see the same types of outcomes. We're mm -hmm. going to replicate the exact same things we've seen in the organization. And so if we have a problem with diversity hiring and we don't have good representation of different groups in the hiring and the promotion process within our organizations, where you see disproportionate negative impacts on people of color or women in the performance review process, for example, as she's pointed out uh, a couple of times now in this talk, if we don't change anything, we're going to continue on and we're just going to replicate the same problems over and over again. And it doesn't matter how many times we have meetings and discussions. We have to adjust the systems. I don't know how many more t ways or how many more times I can say that. Um, it should be fairly obvious, but it obviously isn't. Otherwise, organizations would be doing it and, and they aren't. Um, I get it. Change is hard. Disrupting systems is hard. People are protective. People are resistant to change. Uh, you know, organizations and bureaucracies exist to maintain the status quo. And so you have to disrupt, actively disrupt those systems so that you can make positive uh, movement into the type of new environment that you want to have where you can see better outcomes. But it's not rocket science. We can do this just by utilizing the tools we have at our disposal, and we can make a big difference. This is so important, we can't ignore it. We have to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in our organizations. We need to treat people better. We need to give actual equal opportunity and not just say we're an equal opportunity employer. And the bottom line is we can do it if we just focus on evidence-based metrics and approaches that can make a difference over time. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As always, I hope you can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and I hope you all have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.
Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.